Hello out there to all my loyal listeners, and thank you for joining me for another episode of The Mark Guy Show. This is now episode 19, and it's another post-debate edition. There's a lot to talk about following this debate. I think I'll have a lot more to talk about this time than I did after the prior debate, because after the or in the prior debate, I think that Trump came out weak. He didn't hammer Hillary where she needed to be hammered. He just didn't have a good performance. And you could tell he wasn't scripted. He's never scripted, which can be an asset for him a lot of times. But you can tell that he didn't prepare for a lot of the questions that he needed to prepare for. And I think this time he came out more prepared. He listened to what everybody criticized him for during the previous debate, which was that he didn't come back to Hillary with what he needed to. Because Hillary has so many skeletons in her closet that there is always a way to give it back to her and to really put the ball in her court and make her answer questions. Not that Trump doesn't have a lot of skeletons in his closet, because he certainly does. But there are so many things that Hillary also needs to answer for that she doesn't, because a lot of times the moderators don't press her on certain questions. They didn't do it in this debate either. They really let her talk and talk, and they didn't they didn't rebut any of her statements. But they did it to, to Trump, where Trump would say something... And they would say, well, no, wait a minute, but this is these are the facts you need to answer to this. Another, another example of, I think, the, the mainstream media being biased against Trump. And I'm not here to support Trump whatsoever, but I think as an impartial observer, the media, the moderators of these debates have all tended to be pro-Hillary, anti-Trump. And that's coming from somebody that doesn't have a dog in this fight, or a, a dog in this race. So I thought in this debate, Trump won by a wide margin. I thought he lost the first debate, but in this in this debate, like I said, he came out firing. Really hammered Hillary on her many mistakes and flaws, and either made her answer for it, or made her look bad to the crowd because she didn't answer the questions that he brought up, or didn't, didn't answer to the issues that Trump really brought to the forefront in this debate. And one of the things that's clearest to me that really is in the forefront of my memory is when Trump brought up the emails and she really didn't answer his question or didn't respond to what he said. And I think she's done that over and over again. But the more that that's brought up, the more undecideds, the more people in the middle are going to be pushed over to Trump because you can just see her trying to slither around that issue. And she's been successful at it so far. I don't think it's killed her yet. But with so many people in this country being fed up with how certain people are treated different than others. And that certainly does happen. They see these these government elites being treated differently than they would be if they did the same thing. The more that that's brought up, the more that they see that. And they see how smug Hillary is laughing on her side while Trump brings these things up. Laughing because she knows ultimately she's not going to have to answer for what she did. Whereas any of us, if we had done the same thing, we would have had an answer for, for what we did. We would have paid the price. We probably would have been in prison or had to pay a substantial fine. Would have at the very least lost our jobs or been disgraced from a previous job that we had held. But none of that happened to her. Um, so what came out on the Trump side, you know, the two big issues from Trump's side are the tax returns or the fact that he hasn't paid federal income taxes in about 20 years 
and the the issue of his his video coming out that video and audio where him where he was talking about uh, a married woman and you know he used some expletives him and Billy Bush going back and forth uh, so that came up in the debate I'm not saying Trump handled those two issues perfectly but just those issues themselves are overblown and I think that he did a good job of kind of insinuating that they were overblown. So first of all, the people complaining about Trump's tax situation, they, they frankly don't know how taxes work and are really hypocrites themselves. So at the least, we all take the standard deduction, other deductions available to us, whether it's the you know, mortgage interest deduction or student loan interest deduction or deductions for IRA and 401k contributions. And if you want to pay more than that, if you don't want to take all the deductions available to you, go for it. Be my guest if you want to do that. But it's not right to demonize somebody for taking the deductions available to them. And you don't have the right to vilify them if they choose to take all those deductions. And that's really what Trump did. And any small business owner would do the same thing. If you lose a lot of money in a given year, you can carry forward those losses. It's really tax accounting 101 type of stuff. And that's what he did. He lost a ton of money in one year, and he used it to offset his income in future years. Once again, that's what we would all do if we were in that situation. And if, if you wouldn't do that in that situation, fine, do it. That's your call to make. But you don't have the right to vilify somebody because they did that. Because he lost a billion dollars in one year and then used it to offset his income in future years so that he didn't have to pay federal income tax. But he still paid, you know, property taxes, payroll taxes, state income taxes. He, he still paid a lot in taxes, without a doubt. So the, just this kind of meme of Donald Trump didn't pay taxes for 20 years is ridiculous on the face of it for multiple reasons. First, because yes, he was still paying taxes. And two, because we would all do the same thing in that situation. You know, he hires a team of accountants to save him money that way, just like any other business owner does, just like Warren Buffett does, just like George Soros does, just like any of the people on the left that are calling for income taxes on the rich to be higher than they currently are. They do the same thing. And Warren Buffett, if he wants to write a check to the government, he can go for it. But he doesn't have the right to vilify somebody else for taking the deductions available to that person. So when it comes to the audio released of him talking about women, I'm actually more disappointed in the fake outrage surrounding what he said than I am with what he actually said. So I'll explain what I mean there. Any guys out there have heard people talking like this and joking around like this. And it was clearly exaggeration, especially when he got to the grabbing them by the expletive part. That was exaggeration. I mean, for Trump, I think it is, he probably can be more forward with women than the vast majority of guys can. But he's exaggerating. He's not talking about actually doing that. And I'm not trying to condone what he said, but this kind of talk happens. Virtually any guy, you know, myself included, will just laugh it off or ignore it when it's said around us. But 
what I really despise, and I despise far more than what he said. And by the way, this was 11 years ago. He thought it was a private conversation. And if we were all judged by what we said in private, none of us would be eligible to be president of the United States, men and women included. Not that we've necessarily said those same things or things quite on that level, but we've all said things in private that if we're, if they were released to the public, people would say, you're not fit to be president because of what you said in a, in a tape once a decade ago. But what I despise more than this is all this virtue signaling that people have. And probably one of the most frustrating things in public discourse today, at least from my perspective, is this who can be more outraged contest. Because it, it happens all the time. It happens on the left and the right. You know, it's who, when, when some news comes out, who can be the most mad about it and who can denigrate the person that said it the quickest. Whereas I think if you're actually honest with yourself, you can, you can think, oh yeah, maybe I had a friend that kind of ran his mouth not too differently than that. Or, you know, maybe I've been in a situation where I've done something somewhat on the level of that. And if people found out about it, I would hope that they wouldn't call me an evil person because of something that happened one time. That's how I tend to react to these things. But so many people want to say, this person is the worst human being on earth because of what happened, rather than trying to be understanding about it. So I just hate that. I despise it. It happens all the time, and it really drives me crazy. And it makes me hurt. It makes me hate the people that are virtue signaling that way more than I do, in, in most cases, the person that actually said whatever they said. But I also want to talk about this from a, a woman's perspective. So I haven't been a part of any all-girl conversations, obviously because I'm a man, but I can guarantee that they say similar things, maybe from a different perspective, about men. So they say things that they wouldn't want repeated in public, that men would be horrified to hear if they happen to, you know, be listening in on a tape or something. And actually, in fact, I'd probably be willing to bet that women talk far more about the details surrounding their relationships with men than men ever do in conversations among themselves. So I've been around my wife and her friends, and I've heard how much some women say about men and everyone in their lives, even when I'm around. So I can only imagine how much they say when I'm not around because women are very you know they they do talk a lot I think they're I don't know what the stats are but women just say many more words in a day the average woman than the average man uh, and they're just they talk much more about people and about social things and about events than men do you know men tend to go back to the same few topics you know whether it's sports or women are one of those topics uh, but men just don't say as much around each other and don't talk about every detail the same way that a lot of women do. And so I would be willing to bet that if you take the aggregate of what the average woman says versus what the average man says, the average woman says far more inflammatory things about men than men do about women. And that's, of course, me speculating and kind of extrapolating my few experiences, you know, being me with all woman groups but I wouldn't be surprised and I'd be willing to bet that that's accurate so back to the debate itself I should talk more about that than about my views on the two big Trump scandals but the one thing that stuck out to me was the discussion surrounding Obamacare and this was close to the beginning of the debate but Hillary Clinton like usual 
really showed her economic ignorance here when she was trying to sing the praises of Obamacare's goals, and specifically the goal that no one can be charged extra for pre-existing conditions. This is one of the things forced onto the insurance companies. So Trump came back after Hillary went on this long spiel about all the great things, or at least how great the goals surrounding Obamacare were, but then at the same time she was trying to say that Obamacare needed to be fixed. So she was kind of wishy-washy on that. But Trump came back and he discussed the power of competition and how competition is really the key to lowering health care costs. And I don't agree that this is the only problem, lack of competition, and that this is the absolute solution to our health care problems. But I at least agree that more competition would be a step in the right direction. And that's part of the ultimate solution to bringing down health care costs. But I, what, I, what I wish he had just said, and I think it would have been powerful, though I don't know how many people necessarily would have understood the power of, of this retort, but if he had just said, you have no idea how insurance works, because she really doesn't. So for insurance companies to function, they need to be able to price different customers differently. So imagine if a car insurance company needed to charge everyone the same price for insurance, whether they'd been in 10 accidents or in zero accidents. So those that have been in zero accidents would be subsidizing more dangerous drivers. They would have to pay substantially higher premiums than they'd have to in a free market. So they'd have every incentive to find another way to get themselves from point A to point B. You know, whether that was to carpool with somebody else, whether that was to start taking the train or the bus or subway or you know whatever they could do to avoid paying these now exorbitantly high fees for car insurance and insurance companies would they would start losing these customers so these safe drivers who are cheaper for the insurance companies while the dangerous customers would would stay and more would flock and would get car insurance because now it's far cheaper than it was for them in the past so you'd have this situation where insurance companies would have to continue to rise, continue to raise their premiums because they'd have fewer, uh, they'd have fewer safe customers to subsidize those dangerous customers, and that's exactly what we're seeing in health insurance today. It's exactly what you're seeing. That's why premiums are rising, and it's another subsidy from the young to the old. And I had another whole episode on this. I will link to it in the suggested. Uh, readings uh, related articles part of this show page but it's just another subsidy of the young and healthy in this case to the old and sick because the young have to pay substantially higher premiums than they would in a free market because there's now a mandate where everybody has to have insurance and you can no longer charge differently based on pre-existing conditions but pre-existing conditions is insurance. That, that, is, that is what insurance is built on. When you go and get car insurance, they look at your driving record. Have you been in an accident? Do you have speeding tickets? And they try to price, okay, how much is this customer going to cost us to insure? And that's how they offer you the premium. Life insurance companies, they look at how old is this person? You know, How much do they weigh? They may have you do it. Uh, physical, go get a physical, maybe get blood work done to try to look at, okay, how long should this person live based on these characteristics? That's how insurance works. And that's how health insurance 
needs to work as well for it to function effectively. So Hillary said something back to Trump to the effect of, what do you want that insurance companies just be able to do whatever they want? And I wish Trump had just said, yes, that is exactly what we need. Life insurance premiums, I just discussed life insurance, but those premiums have steadily declined in recent years. And a big reason why those have declined while health insurance premiums have increased rapidly is because government really hasn't been involved in the life insurance sector. Life insurance companies have continued to get more efficient. The natural trend in a free market is for prices to come down. That's what's happened. But there isn't really a there isn't a good reason why the trend should be different in life insurance versus in health insurance except for the fact that government is heavily involved in the healthcare sector and is more involved now than it's ever been before in United States history. That is why prices have been increasing. You know, I wish Trump could have gone into some of that detail, at least. You know, he, he wouldn't have been able to go into that much detail because he doesn't have that much time to talk. But if you can just hammer Hillary on her economic illiteracy, not saying that Trump is an economic genius, but... There's a lot of space there. Hillary says a lot of things that just do not make sense and that are not feasible. And recent history, the Obama presidency, really the Bush presidency too, because his was really a progressive government as well. Recent history has shown us that those policies do not work. One other thing I definitely need to discuss, and I'll probably after that just go into a grab bag of some takeaways from the debate, but another thing that needs to be talked about is Trump's comment that uh, Hillary would be in jail if he was president. Um, and this has been taken away by the mainstream media. And basically, they're calling Trump Hitler. You know, we haven't heard that one before, that the fact that Trump is Hitler, is literally Hitler. Hear that time and time again, uh, because he said basically that he would put his political enemies in prison which really isn't what he said, and it's pretty disingenuous for them to try to frame it that way. So what Trump really said was that he would appoint a special prosecutor to look into the case, and he thinks that the facts are strong enough and that the findings would ultimately result in her going to prison. That's what he was saying there. He was not saying, I will throw Hillary in prison because I don't like her the minute I'm elected president. That's not what he was saying. Um, and I think that he's right on this point. I think that if you if you objectively look at the facts, Hillary committed felonies and could very well go to jail for committing those felonies and for be and for being found guilty of those felonies. So I think he's right on this point, but of course they took they went and ran with that one comment, which is a great one-liner. I laughed pretty hard. Uh, my wife and I were watching it, and she laughed pretty hard, too, at, at that point. Um, another interesting perspective, just while I'm thinking about that, was uh, my wife is Canadian. She cannot vote, uh, and she doesn't follow politics, and she doesn't listen to this podcast, at least not that I know of, uh, but we were watching the debate, and she was kind of entertained by it. She normally hates anything political. But we were watching, and she said, you know, if if I had to vote for one of these two, if I was able to vote, and if I had to pick between these two, I would pick Trump. And I said, oh, interesting. Why do you say that? And she said, 
just Hillary, there's something slippery about her. I don't trust her at all, and she's just sneaky. And I said, that's a very good analysis. And I think it came from watching her only a handful of times and basically seeing how she tiptoes around questions. Not saying that Trump directly answers questions that well and that he doesn't tiptoe around things, because he certainly does too. But Hillary is so scripted, and she just finds a way to get around these these questions because there's so much to hammer her on. And I think that was really at the forefront of yesterday's debate, and that might be my ultimate takeaway from it, is that Trump continually brought up these issues surrounding her, surrounding Bill, and she didn't have a way to answer that. All she said was, go check the, go look at the fact check, the fact checker. That was her answer. And she said, those are all lies. Go look at the fact checker. That's, that was her retort. And that's not really a retort. And you would think that she would have a good answer for these things, or that she would try to justify what happened. But she didn't do a good job of doing that. She tried. You know, she tried to talk about how much classified information that she's had that she's uh, been party to and you know how how in the senate she was exposed to classified information as first lady you know really throughout her entire career as secretary of state and all the things that she's been involved in all the things that she's done but she never said she never really answered to the fact that she was very careless with these emails and that she very likely did expose or at the very least could have exposed these emails to foreigners and that's far worse than trump not paying federal income taxes or trump saying some lewd things on a on what he thought was er, in what he thought was a private conversation 11 years ago you know when he wasn't even considering running for political office and like i said it was a private conversation not something public so what Hillary did actually actually put this country in danger. And Bill actually has been accused of the types of things that Trump was talking about on that tape. Now, I don't, I'm not really a big fan of bringing Bill continually into, the, into these discussions because I think that's kind of irrelevant. The fact that Hillary did intimidate these women, that is a big deal. And I think Trump did a good job of bringing that up. Uh, but I also, I don't love the back and forth of just throwing these things at each other. And I would like more actual policy discussion. Uh, but of course, this hasn't been a regular campaign. This has been a personal campaign, really unlike any other that we've seen. And I wonder if this is going to be how our politics are moving forward. And I think it's a function of our media now. It's a function of really how things operate. And there's there's so much relation now and interaction between the average person and celebrities. You know, whether these celebrities are, are representatives or whether they are athletes, there's so much direct interaction now with things like Twitter and Facebook that I think now politics are going to be much more about the individual and about that interaction than they are about policies. You know, not that democracies have ever concerned themselves too much with policies 
and have made that at the forefront of, of electing the representatives because really the history of democracies, it's been a lot about who would I most like to have a beer with. That's really the deciding factor for many people, for many potential voters. And I think that's ultimately who wins. Uh, but I think that's being taken another level now. And policy discussion has moved even further to the back burner than it, ha- than it ever has been before. And I think that it is just a function of people now, people now having so much at their fingertips and so much interaction with these celebrities and with their elected representatives that it, now that's almost all that matters. Policy really doesn't matter whatsoever. Now, the policy side is more what I like to talk about, but it ends up not being what comes out of these debates. And I think that's somewhat unfortunate, uh, but I think it's the ultimate trend in democracies. And I think you would see that trend whether or not we had Twitter and Facebook and these ways to now interact closer with our elected representatives. I think democracies eventually devolve into this type of this type of system where we have we're basically electing personalities and there are cults of personality and demagogues and I think that's what we're seeing in this election and I think <clears throat> this election has been a great representation of how democracies ultimately fail and I know that democracy is kind of a it's kind of an anointed word and kind of an anointed political system where people think that democracy can do no wrong and that the answer to any problems with democracy is more democracy. But democracy ultimately, it allows the voter to express his or her biases without paying any price personally. So there's a great book on this uh, myth of the rational voter, by the way, that I highly recommend. I will link to it in uh, the suggested readings part of this show page. Uh, But the chances of you yourself deciding an election, you know, any election, but think about a presidential election, the chances of you deciding that election are essentially zero. You know, probably one in 20 million at the best, at the most. Maybe if you're living in a swing state, it might be lower than that. Uh, If you're living in, in a state like North Dakota, like I do, it's zero you know absolutely zero even if my vote somehow decided something in north dakota the chances that our electoral votes would swing the presidential election are basically zero in and of themselves so the chances of me influencing this election are zero unless i do enough and and convince enough people to vote a certain way that's the only way i can influence it but my actual vote doesn't do anything So the price to me for voting for just somebody that I like because I like them personally is zero. And the gain to me is whatever, whatever personal satisfaction I get from expressing, oh yeah, this is the person I like more, so I'm voting for them. You know, it doesn't have to be based on policy. There's no reason for me to do any more research than just picking the person that I like more, the person I'd rather have a beer with. But then think of, Think of you making the decision to buy something. Think about something expensive like a car. How much research you do before buying that car. You're an expert on cars by the time you buy a car. At least 
most people I know. You're going to go out, you're going to look at everything that's available out there. You're going to narrow down your search. You know, these are the years that I want. This is the type of car that I want because it'll be best for my personal needs. This is about the mileage range that I'm looking for. This is my price range. You're going to know all this stuff. And you're going to probably be looking for cars for weeks, or even months, at least most of us. Because that's a decision where if you make a mistake, if you don't make the most rational decision, you pay, you pay the entire price yourself. You're the one that's going to be using that car. Your decision is the only decision that matters whether or not that car is bought. But it's completely opposite on the political level, on the democratic level. And so you vote for the candidate that makes you feel better. You have no incentive whatsoever to do extra research because your vote really doesn't matter. Now, say there was a, a one in five chance that your vote was going to decide the presidential election then you would definitely have every incentive to make a rational choice, to do your research and to figure out, you know, what candidate helps me the most or will help the country the most. And you could say this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason, that's why I'm voting for that person. But that doesn't happen in a democracy like we have set up. And human beings naturally have many biases, especially economic biases. We have a, we have a bias against foreigners, um, you know, we have a bias against free trade. It's related to that bias against foreigners, but we have a bias in favor of protectionism. Um, we have just a, a lot of economic biases. And a lot of times these are expressed in democratic elections because we vote this way. We don't actually do the research just to, to make a rational choice, to make the choice that actually would benefit us the most. Because if we all did research, we would see, you know what, free trade benefits me. But when there's no incentive to, when my vote isn't actually going to make a difference, then I'm just going to vote what feels good. So I'm just going to have all these biases expressed because I'm never going to do anything to challenge those notions. There's absolutely no reason to. And so that's how you get candidates that are so poor. And I think that explains a lot of the rise of Donald Trump and his protectionism and why you know anybody that knows much about economics really knows anything about economics knows that free trade is a good thing and free trade has benefited us but protection protectionism feels good because it's a natural human bias that almost we have to we have to learn that it hurts us we have to learn that protectionism is bad because it's natural to think that protectionism is good uh and so i think that's how you explain the rise of donald trump that's how you explain the rise of politicians that we can't possibly comprehend how bad they are and that's why our choices are so poor that's one of the downsides of democracy and i think why taking power away from government at least decentralizing government is best because then at least democracy because i think democracy is here to stay but then at least the damage that can be done by it is as little as possible and you want as much to be handled by the market as possible. Because, like I said, when you're making a decision with your own money as to what to buy, and you're going to be the one using what you buy, you do a lot of research. You make a rational decision, or at least something as close to rational as possible. You become rational because you have to be, because you know, 
I'm going to be the one that pays the price for a mistake here if I make a mistake. Or I'm going to be the one that benefits if I make the right choice. So I think that's an important takeaway from this election. And people are just dumbfounded. Oh, how are our choices so bad? But it's natural. This is, this is how a democracy progresses. This is what happens. And I think the only way to reverse this is give more power to the market. Take power away from government. Yes, we can still use democracy to elect our leaders. But the less power that they have, the less damage they can do. So I want to thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully I'll have another one of these out sometime later this week, it, especially if there will be any bigger news coming out from the presidential campaigns. Uh, but I thank you for listening, and have a fantastic short week.